0: Today we are bringing a brand new series, and that series is called Sleuth, and we are going to look at how to study the Bible using Sherlock Holmes techniques. Because as you study the Bible, people love mysteries. We love Sherlock, we love crime shows, because it's about solving puzzles. And the Bible is a lot like that. There are puzzles to be found in almost every passage of the Bible. And we're going to introduce you to a technique called Observation, Interpretation, and application. That will allow you to look at any passage of the Bible and begin to find out, observe things about the text, make interpretations about the text, and then figure out how to apply it in your life. Today we find ourselves in Ephesus as our crime scene, and as we find ourselves there, we're looking at the case of the mangled marriage going on in Ephesus. With us today is Dr. Watson. Dr. Watson will be helping us in his first study of the Bible, and I thought to start with something easy for us to begin with. We might study the book of Revelation. Revelation. There's all kinds of spooky stuff in there. Well, actually, it's just a letter written by one of the apostles, John, to a group of Christ followers about how to live out their faith in difficult times. I thought it was a bunch of end time stuff like 666. Not to mention, it looks incredibly complicated. You know what? How about we do something more uh, historical and less apocalyptic? Well, i got a great idea. We can do something historical that's what you'd like. Um, let's go with the book of Revelation because it's very historical. It's actually written to a group of uh, Christ followers and churches in the 1st and 2nd century living under severe persecution during a time of Roman oppression. So severe it's a lot like uh, today's um, news stories about ISIS. If you declared yourself as a follower of Christ during this time period, you could be beheaded, you could be killed, you and your family. It's incredibly historical. You're going to love it. In fact, open the Revelation 2 one, start reading, and you're going to see these incredible insights just pop off the page. Okay, okay. Uh, to the angel of the church of... Emphasis? uh, Pesis? Ephesus. Uh, That's what I said. Uh, To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, uh, These things says he who holds the seven stars. Mm -hmm. Uh, Uh, You have persevered. Uh, You have left your first love. Uh, Eat from the tree of life. Uh, You you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Oh, it's incredible. Just look at all those insights. They're just popping off the page. You see what I'm talking about? Uh, Insights? It's a bunch of confusing imagery. Uh, Not to mention, what in the world is a Nicolaitan? Take a seat. Let me show you how it's done. Every particular passage you come across is going to have little insights to look into. In this case, we have Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. So as I scan through the passage, I might pick, we'll just take four observations. We're going to look at the idea that they have persevered during this time. What is this time? Let's look at the historical context. Exhibit A. Going on during that time in history, there were several Roman emperors. One's name was Trajan. Incredibly severe, incredibly dictatorial, and he made it illegal to have faith during that time that Jesus and John are writing to the uh, folks in Ephesus. Now there's another Roman emperor, his name is Domitius, or Domitian rather, and he sets up a pedestal to himself, 20 foot tall. You can see his head compared to the size of this man. And he said that you could not have business, you could not exercise truth, you could not have any liberty unless you bowed down every day to not just him as one of the gods, but him as the God. In fact, he set up a temple to himself, not to Zeus, not to the Greek gods, to himself. On top of this three-story structure was this 20-foot statue, and every day you had to give allegiance to the emperor. Now, that's why this word persevere is so key. Because these folks are not just persevering like, oh, they had a tough day. They are persevering in one of the most difficult historic times in human history in being able to follow their faith, their character, and their ideals. All of that is embedded right here in this little word, persevere. Oh, that's fantastic. All that detail just from one word. That's so great. But well, we're not done. We're not done? No, we just started. Let's just exhibit A. Oh, I'm going to need some perseverance. All right. Let's go to another one. So they're doing well. they got good deeds. They're testing things that are right and wrong. They're not weary yet. Nevertheless, it says, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. So let's look at that word first love. First of all, we realize that God is trying to have not a ritual with us, but a relationship with us. He uses a marriage metaphor to say, I would like to be in a relationship with you. I want to love you. And though you're doing the right things, you don't love me. I want you to love me is what he's asking for. Now, that was very key based on what was going on in Ephesus at the time because they were worshiping a goddess by the name of Artemis. Ephesus was the center of Artemis worship. She was a multi-breasted goddess that they bowed down to. And to follow Artemis was to be in complete chaos. She had an attitude toward men that men were evil, that men were wrong, that they were demeaned, that masculinity was completely irrelevant. In fact, her teachers and those who followed Artemis had a totally upside down view of marriage it wasn't about serving each other or loving each other it was about domineering each other it was about putting people in their place not only that but if you go to the remains today of Ephesus you're going to find that right along the main strip in old Ephesus is a cathedral and that is where the parades to Artemis would begin they would begin with this just crazy noise didn't even make a lot of sense Folks would come out from all around the community because as you marched with Artemis, the pregnant women came behind her because she protected women but not men. Those who had been in the the parade last year were behind her. And then men who were actually going to emasculate themselves at the end of the parade were at the back. And they had big buckets of blood and they would throw blood in the audience who would come out and want to be washed in the blood of Artemis. All buried in first love. And God says, instead of worshiping me as your first love, you've turned to Artemis. You're worshiping a God who's bringing chaos into your relationships and into society. More than that, there is a theater right there in Ephesus. And in this theater, the folks would wait and gather. Oh, Artemis is here! And they would join her and march all the way through Ephesus. So they got to the final location where the men would literally physically emasculate themselves. And there was blood everywhere. It was horrific. And this was considered the followers of Ephesus. Now, it's into that same location that Paul writes a letter called Ephesus, or Ephesians, rather. And in Ephesians, he says there's a different kind of God who offers a different kind of marriage. Husbands, love your wives. And wives, respect your husband. Don't demean them. Have a partnership with one another. Love each other. Care for each other. And in a society that teaches you to emasculate manhood physically and emotionally, no, no, no. No one hates his own flesh. God wants you to love your body, care for your body, find nourishment and cherishment in your body. Well, this was good news for those who hadn't done it yet and bad news for those who had. But they found love, they found care, they found a new way of being married based on kindness and love. And all that is embedded in this little word, returning to your first love. Now, sometimes in the Bible there are mysteries, puzzles to solve. The word Nicolaitans, Watson, you didn't know what that meant. It's a mystery. The word Nicolaitans comes from three words. I'll give you three images embedded in it. Nicolation. Nico is where we get the word Nike. What does Nike mean, Watson? Uh, just do it. Not the commercial. I mean, in Greek, what does it mean? I have no idea. Greek means to dominate, to conquer. For the Greeks, it wasn't about doing well. It was about conquering your enemies, letting them know who's who and where they are in the pecking order. They had a caste system where those in power exploited and dominated those. It applied everywhere. It's what you did in marriage. You dominated your spouse. What they did in the church, you would dominate the people in your church. It's what you did in in politics. You would dominate your oppressors, those you conquered. Nicolatia comes from the word polis. Polis is where, who lives in a city? Polis is Uh, uh, people. People, right. So can comes from the Greek word the. So it's to dominate or conquer the people. Nicolatians were people who who had a philosophy of conquering those you're in influence with. So into that... Jesus says, I'm glad you hate that kind of attitude of the late Nicolaitans. And this is in the red letters. I also hate the Nicolaitan attitude. I don't want to see that in church. I don't want to see that in marriage. I don't want to see that in parenting. The kind of controlling, dominating Nicolaitan attitude that spills into people's behavior. give you one more. He says, and if you will overcome that, if you will return to your first love, and if you, on top of that, if you will overcome by pursuing me, you can eat from the tree of life. Let's look at this one. The tree of life, whenever you came to a temple, this is a temple from Artemis, especially in Sardis, but it's one of the temples that are still we have remains of. She came into the center of the temple, there would be a garden there. Because to be in the presence of the god or the goddess was to be in her paradise, to eat of her fruit. So when you came to the temple of Artemis, it would be a garden set right in the middle. In fact, sometimes they would actually take Artemis and decorate her to look like a garden. Because to be near garden... To be near Artemis was to eat of the fruit of her fountain and of her tree. Now, you can see the fruit of her tree. A caste system, controlling, domination, chaos in relationships. is all about control. That was the fruit of the tree of Artemis. Now, let me zoom out of back a bit. Look at this picture of the temple of Artemis. What do you see? Uh, there's a large mountain in the background. Well, yes, there's a large mountain in the back. You know, Studying the Bible is a lot like making astute observations. Look deeper, not just a mountain. What else do you see? Okay, um, well, there's a broken down temple uh, right in the middle. Yes, look a little closer. What do you see, Watson? I don't know. A No, not tourists. Let me have the picture. If you look closely at a text, you begin to see these little details as you look deeper and deeper into it. In this case, look in the bottom left corner. What do you see? An old brick building. A brick building hidden in, in the trees. That is actually a synagogue, a church. And look how they chose to build that church, that synagogue, right next to the temple of Artemis. So as folks came out from eating of the chaos of blood and chaos and diminishment of other people, men who came out emasculated would need healing, would need caring, would need esteeming. For those who said there's got to be another way to do relationships, there's got to be a way to to eat of a different kind of tree, they could walk into the presence of a different kind of God. A God who said, no, I want to teach you how to use kindness and love and peace in your relationships. And that's why this is Exhibit D. What it meant to be a church was to take folks who are in chaos, who are unconvinced, who have been on different paths and say, the tree of life you're looking for, the hope, the significance, the purpose, you can find it in the God of the Bible. So four exhibits, all from just four words in that passage. To persevere, first love, Nicolation, and the tree of life. It's just, it's just fascinating, all four of those words with such, with such detail and such, uh, such context. I mean, how did you find it? Or more importantly, how would I find it? Yeah, so maybe you're like watching, like, well, Chad, that's why I come to church, right? You do all the work for me. I love this. How would I do this in the Bible? So we want to give you tools each week on how you can do that. So I'll give you one. There's a website. we'll put up on the screen if you want to write it down. It's called blueletterbible.org. So I'll talk a little bit about it, but you can write that down. When you observe any text in the Bible... All this stuff can be found in there. For example, if you go to blueletterbible.org, you type in the top the verse. In this case, I typed in Revelation 2.1. And then it pulls it up right here in the middle. And you see to the left there's a, a little bar that's called Tools. So you click on Tools. There's a Greek version there to teach you what it said in the Greek. There are Bibles, there are cross-references, and there are commentaries. And those commentaries give you these kind of details to help understand what was going on. There's also MP3s of people speaking on those passages... So you can dig in as well. Also, you might want a study Bible. If you've never seen a study Bible before, this is the New King James Study Bible. It has the verses on the top, but in the bottom section it has maps, it has insights, it drills down into words, it makes these Sherlock Holmes type insights so you can understand what's going on and how to do that. So use this for some of your observations. Oh, fantastic. We also are making a book available for this series called How to Study the Bible and Enjoy It uh, by Skip Heitzig. That is a book that will have available on our book table, or you can pick that up yourself as well. Yeah. May I have that copy? Sure yes, you can. can. Fantastic. So, Revelation, why don't you go ahead and do some studying of that, and then we'll make some more observations next week. Oh, fantastic. Thanks, Chip. Okay. Revelation. Revelation. Okay. A lot of people call it revelations in the same way they call horizon, horizons, or they call Kroger, Kroger's. It's actually singular, and... So that's a step. And so you start with observing. And now let me talk about how you move to a place of application. Or you guys go, oh, this is what a typical message sounds like. So now we move to interpretation. Now interpretation is interesting because now you have to bridge between what it meant to them and what does it mean to us. We're going to move from their town to our town. And we're going to find a principle that transcends and applies to all people at all time. In other words, we don't have emperors. Although the last hundred years, it's starting to feel like it. But we don't have emperors. Um, We don't have Artemis. But what is the principle? Well, how do you operate in faith under perseverance or under persecution? How do you, maybe not bow down to Artemis, but what does it mean to replace God with status, performance? What does it mean to not go through the motions of just respecting God, but loving God? That might be a principle that applies both to their town and our town. Now we don't have any Nicolaitans. But certainly we have an attitude of controlling one another that applies today, and that becomes the bridge. There are results, or a tree of life, is a way of participating in the results or consequences of what God offers that's different from offering the consequences of other things we've in our life. Now, there's lots of applications we could make or interpretations. Because God uses the marriage metaphor and says, you've drifted away from me in the first half, and I want you to engage specifically in the back half, And because Paul writes a letter to Ephesians about marriage, I've chosen to use this as my application. Couples shift their way into a divorce. I'm sorry, they drift their way into a divorce and they shift their way into marriage, a great marriage. Now because God is primarily using this in the metaphor with him. You guys have drifted away from me and I want to have a marriage relationship. And I want you to shift into some ways to have a great relationship with me. So that's the principle I get out of it. And then I'm going to apply that to all of us by saying that's true of all of our relationships. We drift into fractures of divorces, uh, of problems with our kids. We drift into those things, but we need to specifically shift into having great relationships. Now let's show how all that would come from the text when we apply it to our life in, in the context of the sermon. If we will learn to not drift our way into a divorce, but shift our way into a great marriage... We're going to avoid a lot of pain. We're going to learn how to connect intentionally. Now wake up one day and say, What happened? Who am I with? And how did we get here? But you're going to have to intentionally make some shifts, as God is calling His people to do. And you're going to have to intentionally deal with some drifts. So we're going to get two drifts, he says in the passage, and three shifts. The first drift is this. Oftentimes in relationships, they, we, drift into doing what we should without remembering why we do it there's a lot of doing good things for god we're good people we're we're going through the motions of being married we're we're, we're, paying bills we're making meals we're being taxi drivers we're doing the right things we're doing what we should but somewhere along the way we've lost the why the love the passion that was supposed to be driving this relationship it's exactly what god says to the ephesians about their relationship he says look I know your works are going great. You're doing the right thing. I know your labor, you're doing the great thing. You're even patient, that's a good thing. You can't bear those who are evil. You've got a great standard for what's right and what's wrong. Nevertheless, despite the fact you're doing the right things, you're doing what you should, nevertheless, you've left your first love. You don't do it out of love. We don't spend time together. We don't connect anymore. We don't have a relationship anymore. So you're doing the, the what's, but you've forgotten the why. You've drifted. And there's a natural drift in every relationship that we drift apart. And even if we're doing the right things, then we resent the fact that the other person doesn't feel like they they, they love us, that they're connected with us in a deep way. So God's calling them to that. Now, for the Ephesians, it was Artemis. Artemis was what was causing them to drift. Now, the application to us is probably an Artemis, but I bet you there's something that's causing us to drift. Instead of putting your marriage first, maybe you've made the kids more important than your marriage, or work more important than your marriage. Maybe you begin to have wandering eyes because there's something that's become more important, and just one day didn't happen, one week didn't happen, one month didn't happen. Over the years, you've drifted. I talked to a friend this week. He had been in my student master years ago, and he told me just terrible news about his father remember his dad had called me aside when I was a youth pastor and said, I am the spiritual influence in my kid's life. I'm trying to teach them right and wrong, teach them about God, teach them about marriage. We're trying to model a great marriage. And I remember this conversation 20 years ago. So when I talked to my friend this week, he said, yeah, my dad's an agnostic now. I said, wow, what happened? How'd he get there? He said, well, he called me up and said he wasn't sure he believed about God or Jesus or the Bible. He said, oh, and by the way, I'm leaving your mom. What? Yeah, I found someone else who really cares for me, who really loves me. And often what happens is people behave their way away from God. People behave their way away from their spouse. It's, it's one neglect, one withdrawal. You just drift your way, not having common interests, getting used to not having common interests, getting used to centering your, your marriage around the kids, getting your, your just putting up, not really engaging and changing, and you just drift away. It may not be Artemis, but there's something that has caused us to drift. From our spouse or from God, if you're not married. Remember, there was a time when you felt like your faith was more real, or maybe you, for the first time, were trying to engage because you drifted over the last two decades. God is saying, This is a love letter. I want you to come back. I don't want you to just respect me or obey me. I want you to love me because I want to love you. Our second drift is that they were persevering in incredibly difficult times. They had a, a, a moral compass that was incredible, but they were persevering but with no passion. He goes on and says, listen, you guys have persevered in the hardest of times. You haven't patience. You've labored in my name. You've done good things. You've volunteered the church. But, guys, that's not what I'm after. You've left your first love. I want to be in a relationship with you. In Ephesus, that's true between us and God, but also between us and our spouse. We begin to drift when we don't fan the flame of passion in our marriage. There's a brothel today right at the end of the road in Ephesus, in Old Ephesus. You can see the library in the center of the top picture. Just to the left of that is a brothel. It was very common. Everyone went to the brothel back then. Marriage was something of convenience. It wasn't a covenant. It wasn't something sacred. In fact, even today, they have these footprints in the um, stonework to show you how to walk your way to the brothel just to make sure you can find it. Now, some people had a little discretion. They'd go into the library, and there's a back door into the brothel. What does it look like to take our, our, our intimate relationship and fan it into flame and to not go, well, we, we, can't, we don't prioritize that. We haven't prioritized that. Remember when I was in my 20s, we had a couple in their 40s, Stephen Elaine, who did a couple study. And part of the couple studies, they talked about how they had to intentionally fan the flame of passion in their marriage lest they would drift. She would say about, you know, once a year so, you know, every couple times a year they'd go to lunch together. Every once in a while she'd call him up for lunch and, and Steve would think they're going to Pan, Panera Bread or something. And she actually rented a hotel. And he was surprised to find out, oh my goodness, and that they found ways to, to woo each other, to love each other, to do those little things they did when they were dating, to keep the passion alive in their marriage, to fan it into flame. Because the natural tendency is to drift. So two drifts he mentions. Drift number one, doing the what without the why. Drift number two, the perseverance. We're working hard. We're, we're, we're working hard at our marriage. But you've lost the passion. So God says, if you want to restore that first love with me, it's the same thing you can do with your spouse. You need to make three shifts. Shift number one, he says, you need to move from being right to being one. Because look at how good they are at discerning what's right and wrong. Look, like he says, you cannot bear those who are evil. You know what's right and wrong. You have tested those people. You found out who's a liar. Nevertheless, even though you know what's right and wrong, you have left your first love. You are really good at being right, but you're not really good at being in love. Dr. Gottman did some research in the love lab. He found that couples that had the best relationships, it didn't matter what their communication style was. Some people yelled. Some people never talked. Some people actually had healthy attitudes. But the one thing that made all three marriages work is that both partners made the friendship, the connection, the oneness more important than any particular issue. He called it positive sentiment override. That even in the midst of conflict, you said, our relationship is more important than who's right and wrong here. You could agree to disagree. You could be totally angry at each other. But you said our friendship, being one, is more important than this issue. Wasn't that the problem with most of us? We so want to be right. We will argue and argue and argue to prove we're right. And there's tears on the other side of the table with our daughter, with our mom, with our spouse. We've got to shift. Returning to your first love is saying, I care more about you than I do about this issue. We've got to shift. With God, it's the same way. You say, your whole life I thought being in a relationship with God was about doing the right things. He goes, you've got to shift. I want you to love me so you'll want to do the right things. Don't do the right things and you never see me. I want to be in relationship. Make the shift from being right to being one. The second shift that needs to be made is moving from dismembering to remembering. He says, if you want to know how to reconnect with me as your first love, you need to Remember. Now, when I say what's the opposite of remember, you might think forget. I want to challenge you that it's not. The opposite of remember is to dismember. And the context of relationships, just the grind of disagreements and different personalities, the grind of of, of being in a home with a mother and a daughter or in the workplace, there's just so much relationship tension. And you know what that does? It dismembers us. We don't feel encouraged like we once did. We don't feel cared for like we once did. We don't feel valued like we once did. Just the wear and tear of life dismembers us. When you remember something, you put stuff back together. You remember how in love you were. You remember not all the weaknesses of your spouse that you think about all the time. You begin to remember why you married them, why you care about them. So being irritated by your son or daughter, you begin to remember what makes them special and articulate that. He says it this way. Remember, therefore... Where you have fallen. In other words, you needed forgiveness. You fell and didn't live up to your own standards. Remember that. When you get into moral superiority and think that you're trying harder than everybody else. Remember, you needed mercy. You needed forgiveness. God says, and I forgave you during those times. And I put you back together with forgiveness and mercy. Repent, which means to change your thinking. Instead of tearing each other down, you begin to build each other up. Do the first works. Nothing wrong with doing nice things. Nothing wrong with work. Nothing wrong with family. But you're not doing the first things, a connection with me. The first things, a loving relationship with your spouse. That's the shift. Put first things first. Lest I come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. So what in the world does that mean? This is again where we might pull out a study Bible and say, what was a lampstand? A lampstand was the center of the city, like city hall. And this mountain, when I was in Ephesus, Ephesus was rebuilt four times. So this is old Ephesus here on the picture. To the left of the mountain, they had to rebuild it because it got silted in and they had to build one by the harbor. Prior to that, to the right side of the mountain was another version of Ephesus when the water used to go all the way over there. Then on the back side of the mountain is a fourth version of Ephesus. So Ephesus got rebuilt four times over the years. And during that time, the lampstand got moved. The center of power, the center of influence kept being moved. So Jesus uses language very familiar to that group, even though it's hard for us, which is why we might need a commentary, to say, when you don't make this shift from dismembering each other to remembering each other, to remembering my forgiveness and my love for you, you know what's going to happen? One day you're going to wake up and the influence is gone. I don't have any influence with my son or daughter anymore because I tore them apart instead of building them up. I dismembered them with my words instead of remembering them with my words. And one day, it comes quickly, doesn't it? Destruction. What happened? Why don't I have any influence over my husband's heart, my wife's heart? That's because I've drifted. I've let our love life drift. I've let our passion drift. I've let our priorities drift. I've let our friendship drift. And you wonder why you don't have influence anymore. Because if you don't put that lampstand in the center of your marriage, I promise you there's somebody in the society who will do it for you. Light the lampstand and keep it in the center of your relationship with God and with other people. That's what he's calling us to. I tell you, somebody who did that incredibly well was my grandfather. My grandpa, Bob, was married to my grandmother, Ione. And Ione was a cheatscape. And she was just eccentric and hilarious and never saw one thing she ever did wrong. Tough person to love. But I I did love her. She she taught me my love for games and I, I mentioned her on Mother's Day. When she got married to my grandfather, he said, will you marry me? She said, I just don't know if I love you enough. And my grandfather said, I own, I have enough love for the two of us. And I watched him love her and care for her. And I had a list of all the things that grandma needed to change. We all did. But he continued to build her up. She wore a wig. I didn't know that until I spent the night one time, by the way. Tell your kids if your grandma has a wig. Because grandma had this big, bush, like, blonde Q-tip wig. And I'm sleeping over at her house. My grandma walks in the bathroom, and out comes this old man with, like, six hairs greased back. <laughs> it was my grandmother. Oh, my goodness, what happened to you? She was the worst cook ever. I mean, Ever. When she would say to our family, hey, do you want to come over uh, today for lunch after church? Oh, dude." Well, we'll make it at 1. Because when you ate at Grandma's house, you first came home and you ate before you go to Grandma's house. And if she was inviting you to her house, that meant she had a a canasta party the night before, and she asked everybody for their leftovers. She would come to Grandma's house. She didn't even heat up their leftovers in her gourmet kitchen. She just left out the cold leftovers in an ice cream scoop, and you grabbed a plate. (laughs) book, book, book. And then you suck it in the microwave. And so nobody ate at the same time because everybody's always like two minutes, five minutes, ten minutes behind you. One day we go to her house and she makes lasagna. She didn't boil the noodles. So we sit down. Hey, Grandma. I'm cutting into lasagna. Oh, it's horrific. I look over to my grandfather. Oh, I own. You have outdone yourself is the best lasagna this is incredible thank you and it was genuine he had learned to love her and love whatever she did and i thought you know what if my grandfather can have that kind of love for my eccentric grandmother if i even gave a fourth of that effort to looking past my spouse's faults to not dismembering them with criticism and negativity but to remember the things that are good about them because that's what god does for us he looks past all of our wrongdoing is willing to forgive that In Jesus, he died for that so that we could be in a relationship with him. That's what the message is so powerful about. Our third shift, and our last one, the Nicolaitans. Instead of focusing on others' compromises, start hating your own. It's easy to go, oh, look what he's doing wrong, what she's doing wrong. And it's good to know what's right and wrong. But isn't it true that we often are harder on other people than we are about ourselves? Oh, I can't believe they did that. Well, didn't you do that? Well, let me tell you what happened. There's some circumstances there, right? What if we start, instead of judging others, we made the shift to start looking at our own compromises? What if we began to ask ourselves, how am I sabotaging my relationship with my teacher, with my best friend, with my parents, with my spouse? What am I doing? What do I need to change? I was setting up something in the backyard this week, and... Uh, Beth came out, she had a uh, bad headache and migraine. I said, hey, could you help me? I'm trying to carry some stuff out here. She goes, not really. And I said, you've got to be kidding. Not really? I said, I, I just, I don't want to right now. I just came down. like, all I need is, like, it's going to take like one minute. She says, so she helped and came back. She goes, I just hate it when you talk to me like that. I'm like what? She said, like, you can't believe anyone in their right mind wouldn't be helpful because you would. That's what I'm doing, isn't it? And I realize sometimes, in, in, like they're doing, all their good works, your good works gives you a sense of moral superiority where you begin to talk in a certain tone like you're better than your spouse because the way you fold laundry or because of the way you flip the toilet paper or the way you handle conflict. And this level of superiority begins to come into your relationships. And I, I stop myself. I'm like, oh, honey, I am so sorry. You're right. I was frustrated because I need help. I'm take a minute. How could I say that differently next time? And if it is you've got a headache, could you at least lead with that? Hey, I would right now, but I really have a headache. That, that would be helpful. It was a way of saying, okay, I need to look at me. My compromise is not just hers. So I think here's the challenge for us. Whether it's our relationship with God or our relationship with other people, we need to identify our shifts and our drifts. You see, couples drift their way into a divorce, but they shift their way into a great marriage. Identify one drift that you have and one shift to work on this week. Make sure you say shift. Don't forget the F when you do that. Drift number one. Maybe you're going through all the what's, but you need to get back to the why's. Remind yourself why you're serving each other. Maybe you've been persevering in marriage. You're going through a difficult time, but you have lost the passion. What are you going to intentionally do to revisit the passion, to woo your spouse, to love your spouse, to make your emotional, physical, and spiritual connection a priority? And stop demonizing because one person wants the physical dimension. One person wants the emotional. Say all three are important. We've got to work together to make all these important. But pick one of those that you say, oh, I've got to work on that. Not your spouse needs to work on it. The one you're going to work on. Shift. Maybe you need to shift from being right to being one. The team, the family, the marriage is more important than the issue. The issue that you're going to start looking for opportunities to encourage and remember and put back together the heart and the psyche and the mind of those who are in your influence instead of using your just little cutting remarks to dismember them. Or maybe you want to look in the mirror and say, I need to start looking at how I'm sabotaging this marriage or this relationship rather than how they are. If you do that, there's a benefit. It's an incredible benefit Jesus ends by that by saying the benefit of doing these shifts is that you can eat of my tree of life. Now, certainly the aspects of following Jesus and his way of not controlling each other but instead serving one another. The tree of life is a phrase used in the book of Proverbs. You'd find this in the cross references in that website I told you about. The tree of life is the beginning of wisdom, it says. If you begin to do this, you're going to have more wisdom in your decisions and your relationships. It says in the book of Proverbs that the tree of life is a well-spoken word. You will learn how to speak wisely and wholesomely in a build-up way when you begin to follow this instruction of Jesus. Eternally, there's eating of the tree of life when you get to heaven. You get to eat of his tree and participate. But even before that, in the book of Proverbs, it says that hope realized, real hope for change occurs when you eat of God's tree of life. Don't you want hope and wisdom and better words in your relationships? If you will overcome the drift, and come to me, he says, if you will, I will give to you to eat from the tree of life, hope, and wisdom, and words, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. A future paradise in heaven, yes. But even more than that, you can start your eternal life now, as you follow the path he has. Now, you see how we went from observation, to interpretation, to application, and it was all embedded there? So we're going to do for the next few weeks. This is the case of the mangled marriage. Next we will look at the case of perplexed parents, and we'll go on and on for the next few weeks. But I love this main phrase, and the phrase is, "You need to remember." Remember when you were first dating, how you felt toward one another? Remember when you were first engaged, how you overlooked each other's faults and you just couldn't imagine anything but a successful marriage? I want you to show a video clip of a couple who's engaged, and they get an incredible gift. Not to remember where they were, but to take that passion and look forward to what would it look like to have that same love and passion and prioritization 10, 20, 30, 40 years later. Let's watch. Well, maybe today you'd like to hear that as God's call to you. His song to come back, come back Let's be in a loving relationship. Or maybe that song is your song to God. God, I've got to come back. I've been bad. I, I didn't think I needed you. I didn't think it was important. I've shaken my fist at you. But I want to come back. And he has open arms like a father. Open arms like a lover. Open arms saying, I want to be back in an intimate relationship with you. Or maybe say your application is for someone in your life, a child, a coworker, or your spouse to say, man, I have missed the boat. I have allowed the drift to go on for decades. I've got to engage. We hope that this series will inspire you to study the Bible in new ways. We hope it will inspire you to apply the Bible in new ways as we go through our series, Sleuth Together. We'll see you all next week as you came in today. uh, if If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. If you're new, we'd love to say hi. The third door on your left is the hearth room. Some people there would love to greet you and meet you. Thanks again. See you next week.